KCSB FM Santa Barbara 91.9. This is Inside Isla Vista. I'm Jennifer Yoshikoshi with KCSB News. And I'm Ashmika Iyer. This is the show that shares what's happening in and around Isla Vista and the UC Santa Barbara community. On tonight's show, we're talking about the tragedy that happened in 2014, where six people were killed in a massacre on the night of May 23rd in Isla Vista. This year, a film called Not One More was featured in the Santa Barbara International Film Festival, capturing the event of the 2014 killings and how the death of the victims affected their loved ones. We talked to the filmmaker, Cameron Langing, who is also a UCSB alumni, about what it took to make this film and what inspired him to film it. Before we start, here's a little information about COVID-19 in Isla Vista and the county. There's been a slight uptick in cases in Isla Vista, which Dr. Vondo Reynoso, the Santa Barbara County Public Health Director, said was to be expected after spring break and large social gatherings such as Deltopia. Deltopia was definitely a lot smaller this year, but there is still a small uptick. On top of that, it seems the pandemic is shifting to affect younger people, people in their 20s more than the elderly. On the flip side, the county as a whole is seeing a decline in their cases again. Now we'll hear from Cameron Langing about his film, Not One More, and his experience in working on this film, telling the story about such a tragic event in Isla Vista history. Hi, Cameron. Thanks for joining us today. Could you tell me a little bit about yourself? Hi. Uh, Thank you so much for having me, first of all. Um, My name is Cameron Langang. I'm a recent UCSB graduate from the Film and Media Studies Department. I graduated this last uh, winter in 2020. And I'm the writer-director of Not One More, which is a film about the Isla Vista massacre. Were you in Isla Vista during this event? No, I actually wasn't. So the event was in 2014. So it was well before I had ever been to IV. Um, Yeah, but I've heard about it, obviously, moving to IV. So that's how I became aware of it. And what inspired you to make this documentary? So the film department allows its students to pitch any film ideas they have at the beginning of each year. Um, And I knew I wanted to pitch something. And it was after a recent string of mass shootings in the summer of 2019 um, that my producer Lexi and I came up with the idea to um, make a documentary about the Isla Vista massacre. Um, And we just felt like it was time. It had been something that I don't think a lot of UCSB students know about now, especially because it's happened coming up on seven years ago. Um, I know I wasn't aware of it, and so we just wanted to make a documentary to continue to move the conversation forward and to, you know, educate people on this horrific event. So, um, obviously, shooting this documentary um, carries a lot of trauma, and both for the community, I'm sure for yourself, for everyone involved in being interviewed and partaking in it. Um, I was wondering if you could explain um, how you were able to create this documentary while coping with those emotions, um, while coping with everything you learned about and the weight that that carried. Yeah, no, I'll be honest. There was hard days where like, I mean, it's just a sad topic and to deal with a sad topic day in and day out, you know, can take a toll. But um, the stories that we we highlight in the film, the parents, um, they look at it you know, with such a a standpoint of activism and wanting to create a better, you know, country. And so it it felt more important than anything. And sure, there's days where it takes its toll, but I think our whole crew knew what we were doing was important and we wanted 
our message to be clear and that something needs to be done to, to help this issue and to move this issue forward. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so when you start the documentary, you start it with a definition of the butterfly effect. Mm-hmm. And um, I think having watched the documentary that that concept was reflected in a lot of the people who you interviewed um, answers and their memories of what happened um, on that day. Um, I was wondering if you could elaborate on why you chose to begin the documentary that way um, and what you were aspiring to highlight by um, introducing the butterfly effect. Yeah, so the butterfly effect came into our kind of realm of ideas when we we went to Kentucky to interview Bob Weiss, who he reads the book at the end of the film. Um, and we were just talking and he had brought up the book and we were reading it. And it was such an interesting concept to us. Um, and it kind of, it's kind of a double-edged sword because on one hand, it's like, yeah, you know, any little thing could have changed the events of this, um, this whole massacre. Um, but it's also a, a sad kind of idea to take the film in because Veronica, who was murdered, wrote that. And um, we, it's, it's a long conversation we had about using it. Um, it, it, like I said, it goes both ways because the whole butterfly effect is like things happen for a reason. And because something A happened, that means B happened. And the parents struggle with it a lot because um, while that is true, it also, some people don't want to believe everything happens for a reason. And, you know, why would something like this happen? There's no reason behind it. I think something that is true for most documentarians is that uh, they learn a lot as they are documenting um, their subject matter. And I'm, I'm sure that was the case um, while you were documenting the 2014 mm-hmm. killings as well. So I was wondering, were there details or stories um, or anything about the 2014 killings that you didn't know until you began working on the documentary? And if you would mind sharing that with us. Yeah, well, I learned so much. I mean, that was another reason why we wanted to make this documentary is because when you Google the shooting, the only thing that really pops up, the only thing of substance that pops up is the shooter, what he was doing and all this. And we make a point not to say his name or show his his picture in the film at all. Um, and it became very apparent that that was not the direction we want to take the film in. So we learned so many personal stories that had not been shared. And we learned, I learned so much about Um, gun laws, red flag laws, um, gun safety. Um, We went to meetings about gun safety that weren't even filmed just to get a better understanding of the whole argument. And our whole crew took so much away from that experience. But in terms of the shooting itself, um, I'd say the most we learned was just these personal stories that were never broadcast on the news or were never written in any papers um, that people have just kind of been keeping inside this whole time. Um, like Megan's a, a, an example. And I know Ariel, the officer, he's talked about it a lot, but, um, and then there's also some people that we interviewed that didn't make the film just because of time constraints. Um, but yeah, just the personal stories are astounding. I really like how you mentioned that in um, like mainstream news, there was more of a focus on the killer and not the victims. And so when I watched it, I really appreciated how you got to talk to the parents of the victims and um, one of the girls from the sorority that was also experienced nearby when it happened. 
So when you were talking to the parents of Christopher and Veronica, was there anything that you learned about the victims that revealed how much their death affected their loved ones? Yeah, well, that was just the one of the most rewarding experiences of this whole film was having those two interviews. And we flew to Kentucky to interview Bob. So it was A, we were traveling and B, you know, we, we just had sit down conversations about who their who their children were and Rich had brought so much like papers that Chris had written and drawings that he had drawn and his basketball and some of his bracelets. And um, just to get a sense of who these people were, I think was the most rewarding part of the film. Um, Cause that's what gets lost so often in the media um, is who these victims were. Um, yeah. Um, so one thing I definitely noticed was, you know, starting the documentary, I saw the title, not one more. Um, keep watching the documentary and you see Chris's father, Richard Martinez, in his speech um, about what happened to his son and the role of politicians in the NRA. He, he, he screams like in a very shocking way, not one more. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was wondering how and when you knew that, you know, that battle cry would be the title of your project. Yeah, um, it took a while to land there. And we had seen the video of him talking out front of the police station multiple times. I mean, we had thrown back a few different ideas, but I think it was, we could not have gone with it because it's such, like you said, it's such a great rally cry and it really mobilized the community. I mean, the country at the time in 2014, not one more was a really big thing. And um, I believe there was... The Every Time for Gun Safety did something with postcards that had not one more written over, written over it, and they it reached so many people in the United States. And but then at the same time, I think what's sad about the title is like there has been so many more since, um, and so it's it's catching also in that sense of like, yeah, we all got behind this idea of not one more, but nothing really substantial has changed. These these massacres are still happening. Um, so the, yeah, there's a lot of reasons why we, we went with that title. Um, and another thing I noticed while watching the documentary was the way you chose to order it. So you started with, uh, the killing itself and the victims, um, and then you highlighted the victims' families and that segued into activism, um, other shootings across the country. Mm-hmm. And then you came back to the families. Yeah. Um, and I was wondering if there was a thought process to that specific order. There was an endless thought process of that order. Uh, we, we, we talked long and hard about the order um, and we wanted to obviously start with the event itself and kind of put the viewer in in that night, what that night was like. And I, I hope we achieved that with the 911 calls, um, which are scattered throughout the film. Um, but we wanted, yeah, we wanted to start with the event um, and we, we struggled a lot with like how much activism do we include? We didn't want it to be too political. We wanted it to be, like I said, sur- survivor-based, um, victim-based. Um, that was the core of the film, but we also wanted to include some sort of call to action, um, something to get the viewer, get them thinking about this issue, um, maybe in a way they haven't before. Um, so, and then we decided to put that next and we, we really wanted to wrap it up with kind of where these people are now, where their lives are, how it's affected them and what they're doing to cope with it and what they're doing to remain active in the issue of gun safety. And just as a sort of follow-up, so having done the local politicians and the activism, you did bring it back to families. So was that part of making sure that it was 
focused on survivors and the people that are left to grapple with the tragedy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And kind of going back to one of your early questions that ties into like something I learned is like, you, it's hard to understand like the s- scope of these events and how many people they affect. I mean, it goes on and on and on the people, their families, their friends. Um, so even though someone may look at the Isla Vista shooting that has, you know, six victims as compared to like the Las Vegas massacre, which has um, 59 um, and think it's a smaller event, but in reality, it's, it's just, it's touched so many people's lives. And I think that's what we were trying to accomplish by coming back to the families, revisiting where they were at. Um, yeah. This is Inside Isla Vista. I'm Jennifer Yoshikoshi. And I'm Athmika Iyer. And today we're talking to Cameron Langing about his film, Not One More. We continue on talking to Cameron as Othmika discusses how her perspective of well-known places in Isla Vista has changed since watching the film. She now asks Cameron if he felt the same way. So um, after watching the documentary, there were just certain places in Isla Vista that I've walked by on a regular basis, and I can never see those places the same way again. And I think that's for all of your viewers. So I, I was wondering if, if you know, you went through a similar experience where you had one view of Isla Vista and, and if that changed mm-hmm. um, in any way while doing this documentary. Yes, it changed 100%. I, am a, I was a frequent um, Ivy Deli customer. I, I went in there almost every day, it seems like. Um, and once again, I was super unaware that this had happened. I had heard about it, but I didn't know where. Um, and then when I really started digging in and doing research for this, I was just floored. Like you, you walk through the same door, the same place where someone had been brutally murdered and the sorority house. And, you know, it looks different now because there's bushes and they, they changed the exterior a bit. But yeah, it changed the way I, I viewed the town. And to think that something so awful could happen in such a beautiful place, like everyone who lives in Ivy knows how special it is. Um, and it kind of just seems outside of the realm of possibilities, like something like that could happen in our our amazing little beach town. Um, and so it definitely makes me um, step back and appreciate, you know, the place that we have. Um, Othmika and I were talking about this before you joined, but we were talking about how, um, well, I'm, I'm a second year and Othmika is a first year. So we came into UCSB not knowing that this event happened and... And then to see in your film, like the actual video footage from the Ivy Deli when it happened, it was so crazy to actually see it compared to just hearing about it, you know, like it really mm-hmm. you more that this happened in IV. And I feel really safe when I'm in IV, but yeah. your film kind of reminded me that, you know, there's a danger aspect in anywhere that you are, even if you mm-hmm. feel safe. Yeah, and there's there's little bits of it all around that you don't really notice. Like the, the owner of Ivy Deli, when we were um, talking with him and he, he graciously let us in one night to film the deli, which is used in the film, but you could still see, if you look closely, the bullet holes on like the, the chef's, the top of their ovens, there's still marks on there and the benches in the loop park um, in IV there. There's six benches, one for each of the victims. That was a memorial project that happened, but I mean, there's, yeah, like I said, there's little remnants of the massacre kind of all over IV that incoming students, I was a transfer student. Um, so I once, I didn't know anything about this either. So I'm, I'm right with you guys, but yeah, I think just 
educating people about this event because it is crazy that we walk the very same streets. Um, what was the hardest part of directing this documentary? Yeah, there, I, there's so many hard parts. Uh, one was the direction we wanted to take it in because there are so many directions we could have gone in with the shooter, the families, gun laws, legislation. Um, that was really difficult. Um, and But that came, that came quicker than I think some of the other bigger questions we had. Um, yeah, and then another big, um, it wasn't a problem, but something that I think we were all concerned about when we were starting was how do we, where do we even begin? How do we gain the trust of these parents, these people who live through this? Like we were just college students who were really passionate about this film and really passionate about gun safety. And we had no credibility to us. Um, and thankfully the school was so gracious. We met with um, Lisa Bartholomew and um, Katya Armistead and they are in contact with the parents and were able to help us out there and gaining the trust of these people enough to where they felt open to tell their stories was something we worked um, long and hard on and that was definitely one of the hardest parts. Did you feel any mental emotional strain from talking to the parents of the victims and hearing about how it affected them and how it affected everyone in Isla Vista? Yes, <laughs> I would always try and keep it very, um, be as strong as I could during the interviews. Cause like you guys, I had so many questions and I, and some of them are very personal and they're very sad answers. And sometimes I would just get back in the car after an interview and would be like, oh my God. And many breakdowns. <laughs> Cause it's like I said at the beginning, it's, it's sad to work in and out with stuff like this. And even later in our film, when we were editing and having to pull all the footage of all the mass shootings around the United States, it really began to take its toll. So yeah, it's a tough, it's a tough topic to deal with, but worth it in the end. As a member of the audience, I really felt the emotion that the film carried. Um, and I, I thought it was really like empowering to watch. And is there a certain feeling that you want the audience to feel after watching the film? Yeah, I think definitely going off of you, just I want the audience to feel empowered. I want the audience to feel like they can do something and that they should do something. Um, and that this is an issue that we, that is still super prevalent in America and something that should be paid attention to. Um, and then also on a kind of a separate scale on all that is just kind of the scope of the people it affects, how it stays with them is something we highlight, especially in the end of it. Um, and I think it's important for people to know just how how long and how traumatic these events are. So um, after you put everything together, after you shot all your footage and um, pieced together this documentary, how did you feel when you first saw it from beginning to end? I felt overwhelmed. The first cut of the film was well over an hour <laughs> and we it's now down to 32 minutes. So we did just revision after revision. Um, we had so many hours of footage. We interviewed upwards, I think it was 15 or 16 people and only seven made it in the film. So that kind of like whirlwind of like, how, where do we even begin? Who do we, what stories do we choose to highlight? There's so many incredible stories that I, I wish we could have included, but just couldn't because of time restraints. Um, the first time I watched the final, um, the final film, we learned that the film was going to be the film premiere was going to be canceled a week before we had finished, but we had to finish anyways. 
um, and so we watched it the night that it was supposed to premiere, just my, my small crew um, inside the UCSB film editing room. And it was emotional. We all were super emotional, um, not only about the film, but just that we had reached this milestone. But yeah, it's, it's definitely an overwhelming piece and it takes a while to digest. And I think we all feel that. I guess the next question is you embarked on a pretty big project. So since the beginning of your project, um, how, how do you feel you've changed or your perspectives have changed since you started on this to um, when you finished it to even where you are now? Yeah, well, I mean, like I touched on earlier, I learned so much, not only as a, I learned a lot as a filmmaker, but I think I, I learned more so about myself as a person and what I value and something that the film I think taught all of us is just to take, not to take life for granted. Um, anything could happen at any time. And um, that's something we touched on with the butterfly effect is to just cherish every moment as well as I think we all kind of turned into mini activists um, through doing this. I mean, it's all something we're super passionate about and something we want to continue to remain active in um, until this issue is hopefully solved. <laughs> so now that, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's been over a year since you debuted the documentary. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us um, what you've been working on with Not One More since then, um, if you think there's anything more to do and if there are any other projects that uh, you are working on or plan to be working on. Yeah, so um, we finished it last March, never got a premiere, unfortunately. So no one really watched it this whole year. Um, and I think we all needed to step away from it <laughs> just for a little bit of sanity and um, to not have to deal with such a, a, heavy, a heavy topic for a while. And so we didn't really do much with it for, I'd say, the majority of last year, but we knew Santa Barbara International was something we wanted it to get into um, and wanted to submit to. So we began working on it again, I'd say halfway through the year. Um, so yeah, that's mainly what we're working on. And now we're working on getting it into other film festivals around the country. Um, just to get as many eyes on it as possible is our goal. So that's what we're working on right now. Wow. And um, just to touch back on a part of that question, um, what do you see yourself doing in the future with documentary making and filmmaking? Yeah, I mean, I'd love to continue in documentaries. I, I started my first few student films were narrative um, and hopefully they never see the light of, <laughs> light of day. Um, and then I just fell in love with documentaries. I, I did a piece before this on um, Hollister Ranch and California's coastal access laws um, with UCSB's Blue Horizons program, which was super fascinating. And um, I love narratives, but I also love the human component to documentary filmmaking and hearing people's real stories. So I'd love to continue down that path. Um, obviously, COVID has kind of <laughs> thrown a wrench in um, any filmmakers' plans right now, but hoping to get back to making something that I'm passionate about very soon. You've been listening to Inside Isla Vista. Thanks for tuning in Wednesdays at 5 p.m. to find out what's happening in and around Isla Vista. Just a reminder for anyone looking to get a vaccine, county residents 16 and older will be eligible to receive a vaccine beginning April 15th. However, you can schedule the appointment using the state's website myturn.ca.gov as of April 12th. 
And if you want to receive our COVID newsletter every Saturday and be updated about upcoming events, special playlists, and more, go to kcsb.org and submit your email at the bottom of the page. I'm Jennifer Yoshikoshi. And I'm Athnika Ayer. Our theme music is Siesta by Jawser. And this is 91.9 FM, Case the SB.